This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and if you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as you study God's Word, as you're trying to seek a biblical application for the culture in which we live, whatever challenge you may be facing in your ministry or family. If we can be of help, again, all you need to do is call us. It's 877-WAGP, the call letters, 980, or the 843 exchange here in South Carolina is 525-1859. Or if you prefer, you can directly uh, email us here into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And uh, when you call, we do give preference to live callers, and you're welcome to come on the air live. Or many people are more comfortable just simply dictating their question, and we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. So let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning, Rick. All right, we've got an anonymous, an anonymous person that wants to know, is there any reference to the United States in the Bible? Uh, not specifically, just in the broadest sense, uh, in the uh, sense that the Bible speaks of the nations of the world, but even there, goyim in Hebrew and uh, ethnoi in uh, Greek refer, when the Bible terms, terms nations, though a certain uh, people may have certain geographical boundaries. In fact, the Bible speaks of geographical boundaries. Uh, but then you can have nations where you have a multiplicity of nations within a nation. So all of the um, prophecy kooks, I don't know how else to describe them because they are manipulating God's word, often to sell books, often to prey on naive people who say the United States is specifically mentioned in the Bible, they're wrong. No Bible scholar would agree with that. It's not even close to being accurate. Now, that doesn't mean that because we are not named specifically as a country that we won't be involved in end-time scenario. People often go to the other extreme and they say, well, the United States not mentioned at all in the end-time scenario. Well, neither are... Um, many of the 200-some nations on the earth in terms of geographical nations. Uh, but they are in a broad sense in that the Bible teaches that all of the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, will go against Israel as they gather together with their representatives for the Battle of Armageddon. Technically, there is no such term as, if you've listened to my series on the Revelation, as the Battle of Armageddon. It's better maybe described as a campaign but we did study Armageddon, Hamageddon, uh, the hill of Megiddo is uh, there looking over the Jezreel Valley, and it will be there that the troops of the world will gather and ultimately uh, march to Jerusalem to attack the Jewish people. Uh, but all the nations of the world will be that, and so while we are one of Israel's greatest allies, we won't be during the tribulation. And you could see why, too, if you think about it. The church will have been gone 
all of the godly influence that would uh, predispose a nation uh, to be in favor of Israel. And the, the chief reason, the number one reason that the United States is favorable to Israel is because of the evangelical church. The evangelical church, who constitutes a large voting bloc, uh, has uh, predisposed many in administration to favor Israel, not to mention, uh, I mean, even, even right now on Trump's staff, a number of the even secretaries are born-again believers, not to mention the vice president of the United States. So there is a very strong liking for Israel. But once the church is removed and all true believers are gone, you can see why all the nations of the world would be predisposed to go against Israel. And that's specifically what the Bible says. So in that sense, we're mentioned. Okay, good question. I appreciate it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Lisa from Southern New Hampshire writes, I'm writing to ask for your opinion. I've taken your course on how to make God your friend a while ago, and I've been watching your Sunday service live stream as you review the book. That's the Meet the Pastor meeting at 530 on Sundays. I forwarded this email that I sent to a friend that I've known for almost 20 years. I've been praying for her for many, many months, and I felt that I should ask her the beginning questions of the Red Book. She's a devoted Catholic, meets regularly with a spiritual advisor who she mentioned is her good friend and even teaches a ladies' Bible study at one of her Catholic churches. We had met for a few hours to talk before the lockdown began and started talking about the Bible. I shared with her your Search the Scriptures app, and she even listened to your sermon on Genesis about the Ark after after I asked her to one of your many great sermons that discusses salvation and baptism, both topics we discussed. We agreed to meet often to talk about our faith and discuss the Bible, and that's why I asked her to use Scripture in her answers, and then the lockdown started. Her response is confusing and frustrating to me, and that is why I'm writing to you. I have no idea how to reply, no idea where to go from here. Well, um, let me just say, generally speaking, People, when they ask me, well, do I share differently with a Roman Catholic than I would share the gospel with a Protestant? And the answer is no. But there are certainly sensitivities to a person's denominational background that I would want to take into mind because I know that sometimes those denominational backgrounds can influence the way a person thinks, especially if the denomination is less than orthodox. Now, obviously, when you look into liberal Protestantism, um, be they PCUSA or United Methodists or, you know, all these mainline denominations that deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, uh, you know, you're on a different starting point. That doesn't mean that the average person attending those churches are aware of where their denomination stands. For instance, I was just recently speaking with a Methodist, and he goes to United Methodist Church, and I he was asking me because he's listening online. He's live streaming. A lot of people are these days who maybe would not walk into, say, a church like ours, Community Bible Church, but then they pick us up online and they say, well, our church isn't doing anything. Maybe we'll listen to this preacher. And it's created a lot of questions in his mind. I said, well, have you thought about the fact that your denomination, United Methodist, now there are other brands of Methodists. Um, denies biblical infallibility. On paper, they deny the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. So it used to be for a long, long time, if you uh, went to uh, a conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical seminary that you could be ordained 
as a United Methodist pastor. Uh, in the 1980s, they began to X off one after another, where if you attended, you know, X seminary, which is Bible-believing and conservative, they wouldn't even consider you for ordination. And so that's kind of where we're at today. And so what does that leave? It leaves um, men and women, because they believe in women pastors, there was a clear violation of Scripture that, um, you know, sanction all kinds of error. And unless the person says, well, I'm going to, you know, go to a liberal apostate United Methodist seminary and I'm going to be a conservative, well, usually those people aren't very conservative or at least they're not very well thought through because they're violating other scripture, biblical separation. So I say that to um, affirm that if um dealing, say, with a Roman Catholic, his need is really no different from a liberal Presbyterian or Methodist or um, there are liberal Baptists today as well that don't affirm biblical infallibility. They're typically known as cooperative Baptists. Uh, they use the same language, inerrancy and other things, but a different dictionary to define terms. So we have, for instance, a cooperative Baptist church, First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina. They've been doing gay marriages. Obviously, they don't believe in the authority of the Bible in the same way the church has traditionally, historically. Um, with Roman Catholics, um, you know, your your friend, you're asking her to back up her answer with Scripture, which I admire, but for the most part, mo- most Roman Catholics don't know Scripture. So what you want to do is come alongside and say, hey, uh, Sally, whatever her name is, have you considered this passage from God's Word? And tell me how you would assess its meaning in light of what you just said to me about you know, getting into heaven by A, B, C, and D. And again, if you believe in the Scripture as the seed that God uses to convert people, and if you believe in the Scripture as um, alive and convicting and sharper than a two-edged sword and able to penetrate right down to the inner core of a bone marrow, that's a beautiful word picture that God uses uh, such that we're laid bare and open before him with whom we have to do, then you're going to place your confidence not in some apologetic argument, not that there's not a place for those, but you're going to place your confidence confidence in using Scripture. So I've been in many a situation, not just with Catholics, but you know Protestants or now this whole group that they say, I'm not anything. And as I've used Scripture, you can see the Spirit of God begin to work. And so, again, your friend probably doesn't know enough of the Bible to say, well, here's my scriptural reason for backing it up, unless she's using a catechism, and then they use a lot of those verses just grossly out of context. I mean, look what the Pope did yesterday. The Pope gathered yesterday religious leaders from around the world asking them to pray together over this virus. Look, you know, does he not believe the Bible, that there is only one way to come to God but through the Father? Obviously not. And if, again, if you've listened to my sermons on the Revelation, we have addressed the issue of a one-world religion that will um, first express itself in a multiplicity of religions come together in the first half of the Tribulation. And then when the Antichrist goes into the temple, he'll want exclusive worship 
and men and women will be required to take the mark of the beast and only worship him. But again, you know, this is gross error in Roman Catholicism. And so, you know, the scripture says, answer a fool according to his folly. Then it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which is it? Well, there's a time to answer and a time not to answer. And so if, um, if your friend is just like, I'm not here really to find out the truth, I'm just here to argue my opinion, then you're probably wasting your time at that point, and you should just commit that individual to prayer and start there with that individual. And then when you see the opportunity where they maybe begin to ask some questions or are stirred by some things that you've said in the past, then maybe the dialogue can resume. All right, 843-525-1859, and we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, Pastor Bertie. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? So I have a question about the uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit that John talks about in First John 2. I guess it's a, a three-part question. Okay. So um, the first part is, uh, who is it from? Uh, so who gives the anointing? Is it God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Um, I guess the second part is, um, what is the anointing in terms of, is the anointing the Holy Spirit himself, or is the anointing uh, like a, a uh, I guess, a supernatural ability that um, is given to us? Um, and the third part is, you know, what should I know about the anointing, and how can I apply, apply it in my walk with Christ? All right, a lot of questions there, so let me see if I can uh, dig through this. Let me put it in its context. Remember, First John, among other things, is dealing with pre-Gnostic heresy. Uh, it's not full-blown Gnosticism, but it's pre-Gnosticism that it entered into the church. And so, interestingly, uh, he closes the epistle by saying, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, people have asked me over the years, well, wait a minute. Um, he has to write people so they can be assured of their salvation. In other words, is it possible to be saved and not know it? No, not, that's not what he's addressing. He's addressing people who think they are saved, and he's going to remind them they may not be saved. And so all the way through this epistle, when he says, these things I've written, and he highlights a number of different issues through First John that if these things are not true in your life, then you don't have the real genuine item. And so these false teachers had come into the church, and they were infiltrating people. And what do false teachers do? They create false converts, people who are Christianized on the outside but not born again on the inside. So he, uh, just to back it up a little bit, in chapter 2, verse 18 Children, it is the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming. There's a man, he's called Antichrist. He's that one world leader who will come on the scene during the final seven years of the tribulation. Um, he will come as a man of peace. He will show his true colors in the middle of the tribulation period. He's going to demand the world to worship him. And if you don't, you will not be able to buy or sell anything. You will have to take the mark of his name, 666. Just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists um, have appeared. And so this is what Jesus taught in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is the chapter on the kingdom parables. 
And he's really answering the question in light of Matthew 12. Matthew 12, the religious leaders of Israel officially reject Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they commit an unforgivable sin. They say that what he has done is not inherent within himself, but he's operating under the power of Satan. And so in light of the fact that they they rejected God's king, not all Jews, any more than all Gentiles, um, but overall the leadership of the nation did not receive him. John will write in John 1, he came to his own, his own received him not. But then he says, as many as received him to them, he's given the right to become children of God. So in Matthew 13, Jesus is really explaining what's going to happen in the interim until the Messiah comes back a second time and establishes his kingdom with believers. And in those kingdom (laughs) parables, he describes um, an enemy who goes out and sows seed, and he creates tares. And uh, the thing about a tear is that as it grows up in the early stage of the plant, it looks like wheat, and they're virtually indistinguishable, a darnel. And it's not until it reaches full maturity that, oh, that's a that's not wheat there. Um, it's changed color. It's got a black top now. Uh, that, that, that's a tear. And so the question is, hey, what do we do? You know, how do we weed out the tares? And Jesus said, you just don't worry about it. At the end of the age, the angels will come and he'll separate the, they'll separate the believers from the unbelievers. So Satan has his people who are anti-Christ. They are against Christ. They come in the place of Christ with another gospel. And so from this, we know it's the last hour. We have been in the last hour, so to speak, the Bible teaches since the day of Pentecost. When did the last days begin? They began on the day of Pentecost. When the miracle happened on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given and people supernaturally expressed uh, an ability that they had not previously had, they spoke languages they had never learned before, that was a miracle. And Peter stood up and said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. Now, I think we're in the last of the last hour, and I think we're in the last of the last days. And so the Bible also uses another term called latter days, which refers to the last of the last days that refers to the end of the age. But in the truest sense, we've been in the last hour of the last days since the day of Pentecost, because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that nothing has to happen for him to come back. So then he goes on to say, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, if you're a genuine believer, you'll persevere. When we speak of the perseverance of the saints, a lot of people just say, oh, once saved, always saved. Well, that's an aspect of perseverance. But the perseverance of the saints the Bible speaks of is that a true believer will never deny Christ. But you, then he says in the next verse, have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know I have written to you because you do not, I have written to you, not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Father does not have the whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide 
uh, in you, which you've heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. This is the promise which he himself made eternal life. So he speaks here initially of this anointing that we have from God. And the anointing is really God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said when he comes, he will lead you and guide you into the truth. He'll be your helper. He's the ultimate teacher. And that's why he says here in verse 26, just two verses later, these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Again, that's, that's the crux of the issue that's at heart. These antichrists who have come into the church, who are liars, who present a different gospel. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. Jesus promised that I'll ascend to the Father and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And because the members of the Trinity are virtually inseparable, uh, they are one, but they are distinct. We believe not in three manifestations of God, like one oneness Pentecostals. That was a question last week uh, with T.D. Jakes. He's a oneness Pentecostal. He doesn't believe in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, but three manifestations that sometimes God manifests himself as the Father or sometimes as the Son. And obviously a, a text like this totally goes against that. And Jesus said that um, when he ascended into heaven, he would send us the helper and the Holy Spirit, that he would come and live in us, that he would be with us, and he says, forever. These things I've written to you who are trying, concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has been taught you, you abide in him. So when we're born again, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the Old Testament, a king would be anointed by the prophet. He was set apart by the prophet. Again, they're old covenant believers. Under the new covenant, which is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the promise is, is that we would be anointed by the Spirit of God that he would come and set us apart. God knows those who are his own. Um, We are marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 as well, for the day of redemption. So this Spirit of God who lives in us, he is the ultimate arbiter in our heart by which we can discern truth from error. Does that mean when he says, I have no, you have no need of anyone to teach you, that we don't need teachers in the church? Well, John is actually teaching them that. <laughs> so that would be a contradiction of terms. He's not dismissing the fact that God raises up Bible teachers and um, gives various gifts in the body of Christ to minister and to lead the church. He's not dismissing that. But he's ultimately saying, when you hear truth, you'll know it there will be a confirmation in your heart and amen in your heart by the Spirit of God who indwells you that this is right, that this is accurate. Now, again, there are different words in the English Bible that are translated anointing. And so sometimes you will hear of um, individuals speaking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit on a pastor. And again, there's the word fill, plerao, and there's other words that, uh, for instance, in Acts 4, you've got people who are already filled with the Spirit, but they're under great pressure and persecution, 
And then the Bible uses a second word, a different word in the Greek New Testament for the filling, and some like to refer to that as the anointing of God, where in a particular instance for a particular challenge or a particular task, the Spirit of God comes upon you in a special way to do you with the power that you need. Um, but I would say, you know, again, you're asking me from First John, so I'm describing it from that context. But I think what would be really helpful to you would be uh, a full study on the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit. I have a course on pneumatology. It's a few hundred pages long. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, you can go to the Institute of Biblical Studies, and you can find the messages I did on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the word for spirit, and ology, ologos, is the study of. So when we speak of pneumatology, we're talking about the study of the Holy Spirit, just like eschatology, eschatos, the study of last things, and so on. Christology, the study of Christ. And so pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And in that course, of course, I deal with not just, uh, of course, of course, <laughs> I deal not only with, um, you know, who he is and how he's distinct and yet inseparable from the other members of the Godhead, but the ministries that he had in the old covenant and the ministries that he has under the new covenant and the ministries that he will have after the church is removed during the time of the great tribulation. And then we, in that course, speak about various ways in which he works in the heart of the believer and how we can prevent him from filling us and empowering us and on those special occasions doing us with power. And these are important truths. So I deal with grieving not the Spirit and quenching not the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and sowing to the Spirit. Those are four commands, grieve not, quench not, walk by, so too, that summarize the believer's responsibility to the Holy Spirit, that they might indeed walk in his fullness. So these things are all covered in tremendous depth in uh, the course on pneumatology, though I'm getting ready to begin a new series on Wednesday night, starting the first Wednesday night in June, and it's going to be a course on basic discipleship. Uh, Sometimes we've called it Back to the Basics. It's called the Discovery Class on Sunday Mornings. And I will walk through, among other things, in a few of those lessons, how it is uh, that we can grasp even the newest of believers, our relationship to God, the Holy Spirit. He already indwells you. Every believer has the anointing. He's been set apart. He's indwelt. We call that the baptism of the Spirit. But not every believer is filled with the Spirit. That's a distinctly separate ministry of his. All right. Very good. Uh, Well, uh we're here. We did get a question that was dictated. A listener would like to know what exactly is wrong with Joel Osteen. She doesn't watch him, but has a friend who does and would like to know how to tell her friend what's wrong. Well, number one, he's, he preaches another Jesus. You know, Paul speaks about those who preach another Jesus. Well, look, there's only one Jesus, but by that term, heteros, uh, he means a distinctly different Jesus, not an Alas, Iesus, but a heteros Iesus, another Jesus, or to use Paul's terminology in the book of Galatians, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And interestingly, the uh, Greek word for accursed is anathema. And anathema is the word that is a word, a very strong word, 
that Paul is using under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, that literally means uh, damned to hell. Uh, My, that doesn't seem very loving, someone might say. How can you say that Paul is loving? For the simple reason that he is uh, definitively saying that um, uh, if you preach a different Jesus, you are, in essence, damning people to hell. And so Joel Osteen, he's all over the map. Uh, Again, Paul will continue, as we've said to you before, and again, I say to you now, if any man is preaching to a gospel contrary to which you have received, let him be accursed. Now, he had just said, I'm amazed and so quickly, uh, and that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel, which is really not another, because there's only one gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what's wrong with Joel Osteen? He distorts the gospel of Christ. Um, How so? Well, number one, he never preaches about sin. You cannot dismiss what God says about sin and his wrath. You cannot preach the grace of God for which salvation comes, for by grace you are saved through faith unless you need grace, and you don't need grace unless you're a sinner and your sin deserves punishment. So in his own books, in his own tongue, you can Google the exact quotes. Uh, He tells people repeatedly, folks hear so much negative stuff during the week, uh, they don't need to hear about sin. Well, you can't be a faithful teacher of God's word and not preach about sin. Uh, He has a different view of hell. Um, And again, uh, you know, with that effervescent personality of his and that sunny disposition, um, he's really cheating people by not telling the whole story. Um, Here, here's a direct quote. Uh, You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone, but I say most people are beaten down in life enough. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids, We can all find reasons, so I want them to know when they come to Lakewood or one of our meetings to be lifted up. You know what? Uh, I I, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better, and that's what motivates you to do better. That's a lot of nonsense. That's a lot of uh, double talk, and people can't truly do better if the heart is desperately wicked. Uh, He, on one occasion, with... um, Uh, Larry King live when Larry King was on the air three times. You can just Google the transcript. Uh, It's online. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to God? Three times he definitively denies that Jesus is the only way to God. We just read what John said out of 1 John 2 about people who deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the only way of salvation. Oh, you know, he got thousands of letters from fans who were real concerned. He said, well, that's not what I really meant. And then two years ago, he does it all over again on the Oprah Winfrey Hour, whatever it is, television network that she's on. So I could go on and on and on, but he is what we would call a false teacher. And again, you know, false teachers, because of the nature of the way Satan works, they don't come into the church and say, I am a false teacher. Uh, no. Um, Paul speaks, for instance, of false apostles who had come into the Corinthian church. They said Paul was the fake, and Paul defends his apostleship. 
by one, reminding them that he had seen the risen Christ, and two, the fact that he had seen the risen Christ and had been chosen personally by Christ was authenticated, according to 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, when he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs and wonders and miracles. If everyone can do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul did, then his argument is useless, but the fact is, is they can't. And so that was proof. So he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. For no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose deeds shall be, whose ends shall be according to their deeds. Couldn't have said it any plainer. Satan doesn't come with a pitchfork and, uh, you know, cloven hoofs and horns coming out of his head. He comes as a magnificent, beautiful, glorious angel of light, which is why Paul says, if even an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a different gospel, that person is to be accursed. So you're not to believe it. You're not to embrace it. And so if Satan comes as an angel of light, so don't his servants. So, you know, Joel Steen's going to, you know, if you're, not here, if you're here today and you want to be born again, just invite Jesus into your heart. And, you know, it's just, it's nonsense. He's not preaching the gospel. And you know what a good test is? Just meet anyone who's been to that church. I can't say I've met a lot, but I've met maybe half a dozen who have moved from Houston and come to Community Bible Church over the years. And, oh, where do you go? Oh, I go to Lakewood. Oh, great. Well, let me ask you some questions. You ask them the questions, and they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. How long have you been at Lakewood? Five years. You don't even know the plan of salvation? There's something wrong in Denmark when you get that kind of uh, a response. And so um, he'll make you feel good, but uh, it's not a matter of feeling good. You don't want to, yeah, it will be your best life now. That's what he's offering you, your best life now. But now is nothing compared to an eternity. And eternity is forever and ever and ever. And so, again, you just weigh his teaching in light of the Bible, and it does not dovetail his prosperity theology and everything else. We could spend an hour on this guy, but we're not going to. But I hope that will get you started. All right. Emily from Florida writes, Good morning. There is a friend of mine who does not believe in God, I mean at all, and thinks me crazy for believing in a Savior creator. What would be the best way to show love and understanding through his ignorance and downright offensive comments about my faith? He's an atheist, from what I gather, and has a longing for better in his life, but cannot and will not see the love light of Christ. Well, again, you, Emily, it's a great question, and I appreciate it. Just remember that uh, when someone says they're an atheist, remember that they're not an atheist. They know there is a God. Paul argues that in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. We know there's a God through creation. His invisible attributes, his divine power and eternal nature are clearly seen through what God has created so that men are without excuse. So no one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? For the simple reason that his creation shouts his existence. That's why Satan wants to deny the creative work of God and has proposed the theory of evolution. And that's why some very foolish, naive, maybe on occasion believers have thought that you can embrace theistic evolution and be true to Scripture. Um, Nothing could be further from the truth. So they know there's a God through the creation, and they know there's a God through their conscience. And so Paul 
speaks not only of the evidence from without, but the evidence from within. And so in Romans chapter 2, when he speaks of Gentiles, and the term Gentiles is used in two ways in the New Testament, one of those individuals who are non-Jews, they're not descendants of Abraham, most people listening to me today, and then there are the term Gentile that's used in a, as a synonym for a pagan, for a lost person. So Jesus said, don't pray like the ethnoi, the Gentiles. In some English translations say, don't pray like a pagan, uh, like the pagans. Now that's interpretive. It's technically the word Gentile, but that's how it's being used in that context. So that's how Paul is using it here in Romans 2, when he says, for when Gentiles do not have the law, that is, they do not have the Bible, they've never seen a Bible, they've never heard it preached. For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are law to themselves. And that they show uh, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, look, even the hardcore pagan know there's, knows there's a God. Why? Because a God has written his law into their hearts. And so while they may have never seen a Bible, they have the Bible in the broadest sense written into their heart in that God's commandments, his law, are a reflection of his character. And so when they do what's right, their conscience affirms them. It defends them. When they do what's wrong, it accuses them. Well, who are they uh, pleasing or displeasing? The God who created them. And so they know that instinctively. And so your dear friend who says there's no God is just lying through his teeth to your face. And so the only thing I would say to you is uh, I would say, well, Bob, and and again, you are writing, your name is a female, and you're talking about addressing a a male friend. And again, there's always a place for female male evangelism, but you want to be careful here. There's some boundaries, and I think that we could defend, but I'm not going to do that over this hour. But you should certainly say, well, Bob, you you know there's a God. You know it in the creation. You don't think that the eye that's in your head with all of its intricacies and design just happened. No, the scripture would say that that design, whether it's, um, you know, the human, most smallest of human cells or the design of the body or the magnificence of the creations, the creation around us, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Um, you know there's a God in that way, and you know there's a God through your conscience. And you can tell me you don't believe there's a God, but you do. And the Bible says that what you do with that general information will determine what God will give you further. And you can suppress it, and the Bible says in Romans 1 that you can profess to be wise, well, I'm really intelligent, I'm an atheist, and you're just one of those stupid Bible-believing born-agains. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And so you can do that, and the reason you will do it according to the Bible is because you love your sin. You don't want to be accountable. You love the darkness rather than the light. But if you ever change your mind, 
I'd love to speak with you. But why waste any more breath other than in prayer for that individual whom you always love and care for? Why waste any more attention and breath to that individual who at this point in his life is suppressing the truth? Now, I remember a man who came to my apartment complex years ago when we were newly married, and he said, I just want you to know I'm an atheist, but my friend sent me here. And and within 15 minutes, he admitted, well, I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic. And within 20 minutes, he admitted he wasn't an agnostic. He acknowledged there was a God. And then I said, the question becomes, well, has this God spoken and what has he said? And by the time he left my apartment, he was on his knees and he received Christ as his Savior. And today, to this day, he's an active elder in the church that he's a part of in North Carolina. So God can change the hardest of hearts. But why waste all your time on people who are living in rebellion when there are people all around you who are looking for the truth? And so that's where we need to give our focus, not on the guy who just is a God-hater at this point, and a God denier, but look for the people whose hearts are prepared. And and again, just that little bit of witness that I suggested that you share with that person, then you've done all that you can do for that person. And there may be a situation in their life that will come along in the days ahead where all of a sudden uh, they begin to realize, hey, uh, life is not right, and they may come back to you and you might have an opportunity for witness. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Paula from Colorado Springs, Colorado, is referring to Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And then in Isaiah 65.17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What provision does God make for the presence of hell in the new creation? And how does Sheol exist in a perfect universe? Well, by Sheol, of course, the term is used in two ways in the Old Testament. There's righteous Sheol, um, where prior to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, when he emptied out righteous Sheol, uh, so that today uh, a person is absent from the body and he's present with the Lord, But there's also unrighteous Sheol, which is a place of eternal judgment. And that place continues. And Sheol is a Hebrew word that is translated into Greek as Hades. So today when a lost man dies, he goes to Sheol, or to use the Greek term, Hades. And at the end of time, Hades is cast into the lake of fire. So Hades becomes part of the lake of fire. Um, So your question is, how can it, uh, it continue to exist in a perfect universe because it's a perfect expression of who God is. God is just. God punishes sin. The wages of sin is death. The soul who sins must die. And the death the Bible speaks of is not just uh, physical death. Uh, that's the explanation the Bible gives for people dying physically because sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, Paul says in Romans, Death came with it. There was no death prior to the fall. So death is not some, you know, evolutionary shortcoming that needs to be over billions of years overcome. Death has been with us since the fall of man, and it will continue to be with us 
until God conquers the final enemy. Um, so when a lost man dies, it's a perfect expression of who God is. So it's not an imperfection. Uh, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Who will? When Christ comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word obey is an interesting word. Is hupakuo. Akuo is the Greek word means to hear, hupa, to be under. And so when he translates it here, he's speaking about someone who is hearing under. He is submitting himself to the truth of the gospel rather than resisting it. And to those who do not submit, that's a decision of the will. He's not talking about earning salvation. Uh, But again, it's a difficult word to capsulize with a single English word, but it has the idea of submission. Inherent in genuine faith is a genuine submission to the truth of the gospel. And so you can have a book like the Gospel of John, where the word repent, for instance, never once appears, and yet it's the one book in the New Testament where he says many other miracles he did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written that um, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. So it has an evangelistic undertone through it the gospel of John, and that those who believe might find life in his name. It's also a sanctifying um, benefit to it for those who have already met Christ. And so the word repent never even appears in the gospel of John, but implicit in genuine faith is an attitude of submission to Jesus, and that you can't deny that. The guy who just wants forgiveness but is not willing to own his sin is a person who is not really going to become a Christian. The guy who says, I want to continue in my adultery and my pornography and my drunkenness and all this, but he doesn't really, um, you know, want to admit that these things are wrong and needs to be changed. He doesn't need a savior yet. He, he still needs to be saved. So the assumption is, is that the universe would be less than perfect if hell continued. And actually, um, judgment is a perfect expression of who God is, that he is righteous, that he is holy, and it is his righteousness and his holiness that causes him to punish sin. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, this is uh, Dan calling from Florida. Go ahead, Dan. I'm listening. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't hear. Where, Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Florida. Okay, welcome, Dan. Glad to have you on the broadcast today. Um, yeah, I have a question about uh, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which sure. I'm sure you addressed many times. Um, we're talking about people that uh, once believed for a little while, then they've fallen away. Um, my question is, are they were they not true believers, but apostates? And then one of the most troubling aspects of this verse is, is that it says it's, it's impossible for them to renew, again, to repentance. Does that mean that they're probably never going to come to Christ because of their unbelief and rejection? It's a great question. So let me just turn there for a second. And uh, I don't know if you are aware of it, but I have preached through the book of Hebrews verse by verse by verse. Do you have the Search the Scriptures app? I have it, yes. Yeah, so you might want to, uh, you know, sometime when you get a chance, 
uh, listen to the messages that I preach. I have an hour-long message. I think I actually break it up into two hours because I started Hebrews 5.11 where it says concerning him, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Concerning him who? Concerning Melchizedek, this great high priest whom these Jewish people should have known something about, but they were dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So they had kind of digressed for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the problem that he's dealing with are people who should have grown in their relationship with Christ but stayed baby Christians, and that's unhealthy. So when people approach Hebrews 6, they have taken different approaches, and sometimes, you know, you can know what a text doesn't mean simply by the rest of Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if you have, for instance, over 150 passages in the New Testament that affirm the eternal security of the believer, that once we're saved, we are saved forever, that you cannot lose salvation, uh, which means, as a text I read earlier this morning from First John 2, you will never renounce Christ, for they went out from us because they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. So the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints, that... Um, the person who's genuinely saved will persevere. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, uh, they're asking him a couple of questions, and one of the questions they asked him was about his coming. And so he describes a coming time frame that Daniel calls um, uh, the time of great tribulation, Uh, Jesus uses similar terminology. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, and he divides that time just like the prophet Daniel does into two uh, even halves. And there's an event that takes place in the middle called the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist comes in, and that kicks off the second half. And so Jesus says, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He is not teaching that you're saved by your endurance. He is affirming what the rest of the New Testament teaches and what he taught in his own words, that if you are saved, you will endure. And of course, during this time, the costs are great. Uh, Most of the believers, as they're pictured in the book of Revelation, who choose to follow Christ rather than the spirit of Antichrist, they're beheaded. And so the cost is great. um, But if you're genuinely saved, you will persevere to the end. So that's the context of that verse. Uh, I think we can apply it in a more broad sense, like 1 John 2 does, but especially, I think, in its original context, in light of the horrendous persecution that's going to come upon tribulation saints, even those people will never renounce Christ. So he is not teaching, as some of my Arminian friends say in Hebrews 6, that the writer of the Hebrews is saying, well, these are people who are saved, and they renounced Christ, and they lost it. In fact, that says more 
than most Arminians want to admit, because you underscore that it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And most people who are Arminian in their theology like to teach that, oh, well, you know, I was once saved and I lost it. And, uh, but you know, five years later I got saved again. Well, you don't get saved again. You only have one spiritual birth, just like you have only one physical birth. You're not born again and then you lose it and then you're born again, again. So it clearly does not teach that because the rest of the new Testament affirms that once you're saved, you're eternally secure. Some have said that this is a person who has been exposed to the Christian faith, but were never really converted. And so they take verse four from the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. So they, they, they've experienced, but they haven't fully experienced it. The problem with that is the same word, for instance, tasted here of the heavenly gift is used later in the same book by the writer of the Hebrews of Christ in Hebrews 10, who tasted death for us. Well, did he just taste a little bit of death? No, he had the full experience of death. So I don't think it means that, but I I can at least appreciate that interpretation because they're trying to argue against those who would say this passage is teaching you can lose your salvation. Contextually, he's dealing with believers who should have grown and haven't, and so 6.1 is key. Remember, these chapter and verse divisions are artificial, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. He's exhorting them to press on, to grow up to mature in their faith. And in what sense is it impossible to renew? If God gives you an opportunity to mature and you keep putting God off, you can come to a point where you experience some unchanging consequences. And he has just illustrated that at the end of Hebrews 3 and in chapter 4. In Hebrews 3, he deals with the peril of unbelief and he speaks of those who came to Kadesh Barnea Remember that, and there was a majority report and a minority report, and most people listened to the majority, and God said they're not going to go in. The next day, oh, Moses, we were wrong. We were sorry, and they even try to go into the promised land, but the slaughter is great. And so after he illustrates that in one, he says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you come short. It was impossible to renew them to repentance. They had made a decision that had lasting consequences. And this passage is a very sobering passage for Christians if they read it in its context. So I would direct you to the Search the Scriptures app, listen to the last message in chapter 5 and the first message in Hebrews 6, and uh, you can go, I go through every single word, every single phrase in two hours that I can't do here, but I hope that will direct you in the right place. Hey, thanks everyone for being with us today. For the Bible line, God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday. 